I just felt like starting with some music this time, break it up a little bit. All right, I'm in the middle of a series on Indigenous Australia, you know, and I got onto this subject by accident. Uh, I just I listened to the previous episode actually after I recorded it, and um, it was broken up into two parts. And the second in the second part, I started to speak too fast in my opinion, so I need to watch myself with that uh, for my own purposes, you know, even I started to uh, have a struggle to understand myself, so I have to learn to slow down, you know, a lot of people have to do that when you're speaking, you must speak slowly and clearly, so that's what I'm going to try and do, Uh, that's what I'm going to try and do. Right, now in the previous episodes, all the previous episodes, I kind of repeat myself, but I'm always looking for a certain level of credibility, uh, which I, in order to qualify myself to make a podcast on Indigenous Australia. And that, you know, um, features of that credibility include um, not knowing much about Indigenous Australia. Um, that you know that's very important to me uh, and another one is not caring about indigenous Australia I, I'm at great pains to point out that I don't care about indigenous Australia or indiz- indigenous Australians and I'm a great pain to um, point out that I don't care about Westerners either and I don't care about the nation, the nation state of Australia, and so on. You'd have to listen to all the previous episodes to know what I'm even talking about. Okay then, so without further ado, and I've got a little um, a cheats way of, um, you know, I've, I've evolved into a cheating way of making these episodes, uh, in a, and, and I'm leveraging off someone else's podcast so I don't have to do any thinking myself. Um, and actually, um, as I'm speaking here, I should have prepared this before I started. I have to find that episode um, by this other person. Uh, if you bear with me for a second, I'll find it. See, I'm wasting your time now. That's not very nice, is it? Uh, where is it? Um, search. And what was it called? The History. The. I'm typing that into my phone. I'm recording onto my iPad. Now the fact that I'm wasting your time here uh, in even looking it up after I've started the episode, the history of Australia um, is hopefully something that might drive you away. You know, all right, I found it. Now I do remember where I was up to. Uh, this is someone else making a podcast on the history of Australia, and I'm using his. He's a Melbourneite, a fellow Melbourneite, and he's... Like Wait a minute, podcast. that's not it, press pause. Um, now, I was at the three-minute mark, I remember that. Now, what I do is I just let him talk for a minute, and then that gives me an idea what to speak about next. Okay, so I was up to the three-minute mark of the first episode of his podcast. He only did three episodes, so let's hear what he's got to say, and... Uh, here we go. And I'm... All right, let's just listen to him. ...logical order of the history of this great country. The indigenous people, the Dutch landings in the west, the English landings in the east, colonisation, federation, all the way through to current day. 
And I'm certain that this is a story that not many people of this world know, and it's my mission to change that. This is a story that, what's he saying? Not many people in this world know, and it's my mission to change that. All right, so if you've listened to my previous episodes, he's on a completely different mission um, from me, you know. And my mission is, uh, I have no mission. Uh, my mission is to not change your mind at all and to not educate you. And, you know, I think I just want to do the opposite of whatever this guy's doing. And I want to do whatever the opposite of most people are doing on podcasts and what most people are doing in public discourse, you know. Um, I want, you know, if you've got a certain idea on what you think is correct or right or, you know, your preferred belief on what Indigenous Australia is all about or what Australia in general is all about, what the nation state of Australia is about, hold on to that idea. I don't want to change it at all. You know, I hope that whatever I say in this podcast reinforces what you already think. All right? Even if I say something you disagree with, you know, use that to scoff at what I'm saying, and I will support that. You know, if you're a, a beautiful, compassionate progressive, I'm with you all the way. Um, if you're an indigenous person, I'm with you all the way. If you're a redneck racist, I'm with you all the way. Okay, now let's see what he's got to say next. Now, this is all my credibility here on the line. But change that. Welcome to the history of Australia. Australia. That's how we say it. About 700 kilometres or 435 miles northwest of Darwin, which is the capital city of Australia's Northern Territory, is the island nation called Timor. It's the southernmost island in the Southeast Asian region, and it's where 65,000 years ago, Homo sapiens, whose ancestors had walked across all the way from Africa, built primitive rafts or boats, and they began floating out to sea on the longest ocean voyage ever made by a human at that time. Right, so he's going with the Western-style, um, evidence-based uh, history, you know, with a Western-style, evidence-based history of Australia. He's, and that's what now my colleague here is going on. Uh, and, you know, there are other histories of Australia, too, that are just as valid, as I argued in a previous episode, arguably just as valid. Um, in which um, the indigenous peoples have been here since, you know, since... I actually don't know what their origin story is, but whatever their origin story is, you know, that um, that the earth somehow gave rise to humans. I'm sure... I'll bet you it's something like that. I know it's something like that, but I can't remember the exact details, and it doesn't matter. Okay, but he's going with, you know, evidence-based sort of... Oh, you know, out of Africa theory, you know, um, and uh, all right, uh, in which your senses are king, you know, um, the scientific approach. And I'm, you know, I was trained as a scientist per se, didn't follow through with it, um, went into computers, something boring instead, where the money was, you know, <laughs> I sold out. Um, all right, here we go by a human at that time. Now, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, calling it a voyage. 
Hard evidence from the time period is extremely minimal, so we don't know why these people decided to float out to an infinite deadly blue expanse. But we just know that they did. They had to have. Southeast Asia is an archipelago, which means a bunch of islands. And 65,000 years ago, it was a glacial period in the Earth's climate cycle. This means that most of the Earth's water is held up in glaciers and ice shelves in the northern and southern poles of the planet, which means that the sea levels are lower, so the islands of Southeast Asia were even closer together than they are today. Ancient humans standing atop mountains in Indonesia would have been able to see other islands over the water and travel to them either by floating on currents or, more likely, by building some kind of primitive raft. These islands that they landed on would have been untouched, with swaths of live game to hunt and plants to eat. It would have been goddamn heaven for them. And after each successful crossing, some people would stay on an island and others would set off again to the next nearby island. It seems rather plausible, their island hopping through Southeast Asia. Until you reach that last island, the southernmost island, Timor. I'll just mention, you know, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh... It's quite linear, um, you know. There could be vast amounts of ex amounts of time here, so the island hopping could have been both ways a lot. I imagine, uh, I, you know, and I'm just just adding something for nothing here, uh, for no reason. But you know, there could have been people come to Timor, and then you know, and go away from Timor again and come back again and all that sort of thing. There can be a lot of movement around. I remember. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of listened and studied, well, studied, um, histories all over the place, and people always, uh, so they tend to have things going in a very linear way, you know, that humans went out of Africa and then spread to Asia, you know, um, and then, you know, and all that sort of stuff. It's almost like it's in an arrow, or one way, but I imagine, you know, there'd be a thousands of years of humans crisscrossing across Europe. I know there's one theory of, um, and it could relate to indigenous people. Um, uh, I have uh, heard ideas, you know, maybe from DNA and whatever, that indigenous people might be more closely related to Ary Aryans, as you might call it. You know, Aryans is kind of a linguistic grouping of peoples. Um, you know, not not so much a Nazi one, maybe. But, you know, more so they might be more closely related uh, to them than um, uh, groups currently in Africa. That sounds mad, doesn't it? Because everyone's from Africa, you know. But I'm just saying it's not linear, you know. I'm sure there were thousands of years where people came out of Africa across to Asia and then they might have come back across to Europe for a while and then they might have come... You know, you don't know how people were moving around... And there could have been vast amounts of time, you know, where people went all the way to India and then all the way back and all that sort of thing. There's an argument that I he heard, you know, as to how people, you know, the Indus Valley in northwest India, um, and people were trying to figure out, did people come from uh, the steppes, you know, of uh, below Russia, um, of Asia, uh, and populate into India through a pass near Afghanistan? Or did they start in India, obviously, you know, and, and, and go back up to the steppes, you know, and then spread across Europe? You know, which way did it go? You know, and sometimes, I, and I have not, I don't, I'm not a, um, 
you know, I'm not an expert in the field, but, you know, sometimes I think, well, maybe they went both ways for about 10,000 years, you know. Maybe they went through that pass back again and heaps of times, you know. Maybe it's messy. Maybe it's a lot more messy than they started up there and then came down here and then, then kept going and ended up in Australia, you know. You know, maybe that's, you know, they, they, you get that theory, you know. They started up there and then they came through to India and then down to Australia, you know. Or, you know, uh, they started in India, in India and northern India and the Aryans, as they like to call themselves, you know, as people like to call them, you know, Himmler might want to call them that, Hitler. Um, they started in northern India and then spread up into Europe, you know, like an arrow. And then also back down to Australia, you know. Um, or... Well, they're just migrations all over the place, backwards and forwards, like there are today. Yeah, um, I like the mess. I like the. I like my history messy. Okay, let's let's hear what he's got to say next. Now it's important to note that when the water levels were low, the mainland of what is now Australia was connected to the island of New Guinea, which is an island nation today that's north of Australia. This big, continuous landmass of Australia, New Guinea, Tasmania, and some other islands surrounding Australia was just one big mass, and it was referred to as Sahul. It was referred to as Sahul. All right, you know, I make mistakes too. It wasn't referred to as anything back then because, well, who knows what the ancient humans called it. If they called it anything, they wouldn't even know it was one landmass. It's called that now. I don't know where that... I've heard that Sahul before, but I don't know where the word comes from or where it first came into, you know, our language. I, I dare say a lot more recent. Uh, who knows? Okay. To as Sahul. The estimated distance from Timor to Sahul around this time is about 90 kilometres or 55 miles. That's a long f***ing way on a tree bark... I don't know what he needs to say, king, you know, king. You know, either say it or don't say it. Oh, look, all right, I see. sometimes I say things like that. Let him go. All right, here we go. On a tree bark raft. And what's more, these early humans almost certainly would not have been able to see Sahul from Timor, no matter how high the hill, no matter how tall the mountain, because dust and dirt and vapour and particles in the air limit a modern human's unobstructed view through the air to about 20 kilometres or 12 miles, far short of the 90 kilometres or 55 miles between Timor and Sahul. Now, I'm aware that this number of a 20-kilometre line of sight includes pollution in modern-day world. I looked for sources and estimates on how far in the atmosphere without current levels of pollution you'd be able to see, but I really found nothing. And plus, we don't know how capable human eyes were 65,000 years ago. It is likely that they were very similar to what we have today, but we just don't know for sure. We may not know how or why, but the crossing of the ocean from Timor to Sahul was the first unequivocal evidence of a sea crossing by humans to another land. Many experts remark that the arrival of Homo sapiens in Australia was one of early humans' greatest achievements, and Chris Stringer, who wrote the book The Origin of Our Species, said that the voyage, quote, clearly demonstrates the high capabilities of the people who first accomplished it. He also said that the accomplishment was a turning point in human evolution. The Aboriginal Australian... Hmm. Hmm. All right. The Aboriginal Australians that are alive today are descended directly from those Homo sapiens who crossed the sea 65,000 years ago. Right. 
He he does say things as fact, this guy. Although I, I will say that right at the start of his podcast, he said this is all subject to, you know, further evidence to hand and that the facts might change. I do remember him saying that. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I like a slightly more cautious grammar, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, the look, he's probably right, I suppose. The modern Indigenous people are descended from those people who came across. But there might have been waves upon waves, thousands of years apart, couldn't there? I mean, a thousand years is a long time. You know, 2,000 years is between, you know, the fall of the Roman Republic, you know, um, Jesus' time and all that sort of stuff to now. All right. So there could have been a wave of people coming across and then a wave going back to Timor and then a wave coming again 2,000 years ago. And that could have happened, you know, over and over again, thousands and thousands of years of traffic between... Timor and Australia, you know, it, it all feels a bit linear to me um, and not messy enough for me. I like my history messy. Um, just make, you, you just make of that what you will. I'm just trying to offer, you know, I'm just trying to make it sound more messy because I love messy. All right, let's keep going. Finished a journey started by their ancestors in Africa 100,000 years prior. From Somalia to Sahul. From Somalia to Sahul. Okay, Somalia. I've got Ethiopian friends. You know, I've done a podcast on Ethiopia. Um, they like to say it's all about Ethiopia, you know. But um, Somalia, Ethiopia, and North Sudan, you know, Sudan, um, they're all in a line sort of thing. And, you know, people used to call that Abyssinia, that general region. I wouldn't lock it down to a single country, but I've spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, Ethiopia and its neighbours um, and the peoples across that whole band of countries as we know them today, they tend to call themselves the Habesha people, the mixed tribes. They're a mixture of uh, African and Semitic peoples. And, oh, look, he's going back further than that before even the Semites got to... Um, Ethiopia, Somalia, and, you know, uh, that area in general. So he's going back to, you know, Lucy, that time. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, the skeleton of Lucy uh, that was found in Ethiopia. And, you know, that supports an idea that humans started in Ethiopia or thereabouts. Uh, you know, modern, you know, anatomically modern humans. But... Um, anatomically, modern humans could have started anywhere, really, I suppose, and come back to Ethiopia, um, because it can get messy there too, you know. Uh, when this, when our species emerged, it could have emerged slightly somewhere different. It could have emerged somewhere very unexpected, and there's no fossil record of that. And then they, those, those um, early humans could have come back to Ethiopia. You don't know that. I heard someone say something, you know, as far as far afield as Morocco. You know, the, you know, some people were proposing that, you know, the first humans, because it's wherever apes, you know, whatever our ape-like ancestors came from, that's where, you know, and when they first evolved, 
by mechanisms I won't get into, you know, there's, what is it called, spontaneous, you know, um, mutations and the, the sorts of things, or if it's very, um, evolution, you know, if you buy into the theory, or you, know, well, you can buy into every theory, but evolution isn't very, is quite messy too, it's not even, you know, you can have not much evolution, not much evolution, not much evolution, then bang, you know, suddenly a big jump in evolution, you know, and humans did that too, you know, um, you know, just going along, going along for a thousand years, thousands of years, thousands of years, not changing much, not evol not evolving much, fire gets, you know, gets harnessed, and suddenly there's a huge jump because they change their diet, you know, and then they go along for a long time and all that sort of stuff, and, um, not much evolution, not much evolution, not much evolution. Suddenly agriculture springs up when, you know, they think that might have been in, um, um, in you know, modern day um, Canaan or whatever. Um, Jordan, you know, agriculture crops up, you know, um, along rivers, you know, the fertile crescents and all this sort of thing. That um, Now I say Tigris and Euphrates, Tigris and Euphrates, you know, whatever. Um, and then civilizations grow up on the, civilizations grow up on the Indus Valley and the, and along the Nile and along the, is it the Yangtze or the Yellow River in China, you know, wherever the rivers are, you know, civilizations grow. But the point is agriculture comes along and bang, another jump in evolution, you know. And then they, people go along and along, not much evolution, not much evolution, you know. And then the, those Greek philosophers, you know, they have an intellectual fire go on, you know, they harness a different fire of an intellectual sort. Um, the whole, you know, that started off, you know, around Socrates, you know. I know there was ones before Socrates, you know, the the pre-Socratean uh, philosophers, and but there's a fire there too, and that makes us more human in a way. You know, fire made us more human, agriculture made... But then that's very contentious too, you know, because people kept being hunter-gatherers and not doing this sort of philosophy and doing other sorts of philosophies, like you see in India, you know, which had a different type of sort of philosophical awakening... Um, and then the indigenous peoples of Australia might have a different, you know, maybe agriculture sent people backwards, you know. Um, so keep it messy. That's my suggestion. But my friend here, my colleague doing this other podcast, he's going to keep it neat for you. He's going to neaten it up. I'll try and keep things messy. He'll try and make things neat. How about we have that deal go, you know, on. Uh, in the previous podcast, I was talking about how uh, hunter-gatherer, uh, peoples tend to find their gods in the land. Yeah, this is a theory, and um, and agriculture-based societies tend to find their gods in the sky. Um, now, um, that was explored by that professor in that other podcast I was talking about, the one from La Trobe University, the one that was involved in the history wars. Now, um, and the and the idea of that is. Um, uh, agriculture-based societies have division of labour and uh, they tend to end up hierarchical in nature with a kind of king at the top um, because that's the way division of labour works, you know. Um, people specialise, you know, specialise, um, and then one specialist trade ends up a king, you know. And, um, and you have that replicated in the chimpanzee world too. You have a king in those communities too, don't you? But anyway different than that, a specialisation of labour and you end up having a king and a hierarchical um, sort of situation and the king at the top and, you know, another level underneath, priests maybe, you know, a level of priests and then another level below that of 
artisans and all that sort of stuff and merchants and then you know peasants at the bottom and slaves down below um and and agriculture tends to promote that idea but once you have a king at the top you know it's power down you know the power derives from the king the power it starts with the king and is filtered down through his benevolence you know or his brutality whichever you like and that's what gets people looking up to the sky for their gods i think is how the theory goes why do agricultural sort of societies end up looking to the skies um and why do hunter gatherer societies tend to look around and be at one with the earth you know and does agriculture when agriculture springs up in a society that was previously hunter gatherer does um agriculture send that culture backwards um uh, because the idea of being at one with the land you know is that more sophisticated um in a way and when people switch to an agriculture based society obviously um in some ways that is um in the innovation increases you know you get the idea of the wheel and all that sort of thing and you know and then eventually ipads you know um and rockets that go to the moon but does that do they give do agricultural societies give themselves a kind of cultural lobotomy a, a sophistication lobotomy when they lose connection with the land and start looking up into the sky with their gods why are they looking up at the sky well everyone's looking up at the king and then one thinks oh where's the king deriving his power from you know so everyone's looking up 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 the hierarchy and the priests are you know end up in the second level and they're looking to the king and it suits them to say well we're all looking up at the king and the king gets his um power from the skies okay and all the people all the peasants say from the skies what do you mean by the skies and they say by from god you know and they say what's this god business oh, it's just a little thing we made up and it's true okay so that's the general tendency whether you're in india with you know they look up into the sky or into the brahman or wherever they look and you know the um the semitic type peoples you know including the jews but including all the other ones too over in modern day iraq and all that sort of thing you know nebuchadnezzar of babylon and all that sort of thing they're all looking up at the sky too um they're looking up all the peasants are looking up at the king and the king and they look past the king and they see god all right so that's how agricultural systems work and um i discussed all that in a previous episode but i didn't i wasn't very explicit on why agricultural societies perhaps look up to the skies to find their gods and hunter gatherer uh, communities look around at the rivers and the ground and see their gods there um but not necessarily their gods but they just feel at one with the land because you know they're interacting with the land all the time they're still connected with the land and this is a really important point in you know this difficult time we're having us we westerners in trying to come to terms with the sophistication of the indigenous um belief systems or reality systems as they see it compared to our reality systems you know and it's been a slow awakening on our behalf and probably on their behalf too it's not all one way um and uh it's a really important point i think but you know it's the long lost cousins 
coming together when the British came to Australia, as long-lost cousins, and they meet again, but one lot sees their religion in the skies and one lot sees their religion as being connected to the land. Okay, um, what was I talking about then? I was talking about, oh yeah, no, this guy was talking, they came from Somalia to Sahul. Right, they came from, um, humans came from somewhere in Africa maybe to um, Sahul, you know. Gee, you know what? Apes could have even gone further north, ended up somewhere in, you know, Persia and uh, evolved there and then went back to Africa. Um, now, look, probably not, you know, um, but you can't discount it. They might find it. They found a, a skeleton of Lucy in Ethiopia, which is, I think, the oldest sort of humanish looking skeleton. But you can't sort of say that um, what I just said isn't possible. You know, they might find a skeleton up in Germany one day, which predates Lucy, and they might say, oh, my goodness, you know. Um, apes went up into Europe, they sort of spread into Europe, you know, ooh, 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 like that, went up to Europe, um, and humans started up there and then came back down again. Um, and then other apes went up into Europe and sort of became Neanderthals, and it all got messy, and people, and apes were going everywhere, and humans were going everywhere, and who knows where, the, um, the various species, Homo erectus, you know, Neanderthals, and now, what's this other mob, the Denisovians, that, that sprang up somewhere, that sprang up somewhere, and um, indigenous peoples are derived from a combination of what we might call Homo sapiens and Denisovians, and we Europeans apparently seem to be a bit of a, um, you know, the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens got it on, um, and the Africans seem to be pretty pure-bred Homo sapiens, as we might call it, we're all a mixture. Oh, um, you know, we're all the same, most of the songs go today. We're all the same, you know. Uh, we're not really, you know. Um, DNA has proved us all the same. Well, actually, DNA has proved us all maybe to be different, you know. I think we're 3% Neanderthal, we Europeans. Um, and I think the indigenous people, I think DNA is sort of suggesting they might be 3% Denisovian, wherever the Denisovians come from. What is that, China? Something like that. And there's sort of, and you know, modern evidence is saying that the Africans might be the only the only pure Homo sapiens. You know, maybe they're the most human peoples. Um, and so we're not quite all the same. All right, let's keep moving. Hear what he's got to say, and then I better start driving. Actually, I'm supposed to be going somewhere. Um, pick up my daughter from somewhere. Uh, hope the engine noise isn't too loud. I'll press play, and then hands free, and then um, start driving. Okay. Oh, it's just music anyway. History of Australia is a Burke Media Podcast. Dialogue and music was written, performed, reported and mixed by Chris Burke in the world's most livable city, Melbourne, Australia. The History of Australia is a me production. Music and speaking is by me. Everything's by me. I make the theme music and, uh, and uh, I come from Melbourne, which is the greatest city on earth. You know, um, it's been a wonderful success, the whole idea of Australia. And um, copyright me. <laughs>
Oh, I'm being cruel. That's very bad of me. Um, all right, let's listen to him. He's going to smash me, this guy. Wouldn't it be funny if he lived in my street in Melbourne? The most livable city in Australia. All right, let's listen to him. Oh, God damn, God damn. I'm being a bit of a bully. I didn't want to be that. Um, but look, this guy is better than me, quite clearly. Uh, Melbourne, Australia. Hey, it's Chris, and thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the History of Australia podcast. I'm really, really excited to get this thing off the ground, but at the moment, what I need from you guys, the listeners, is a bit of your help. Season one, I've got all mapped out. I said earlier on in the episode that I've uh, got a basic plan, a brush over of the history from then until now. But in season two and on from there, what I want to do is focus in on specific people or specific events, and I need your help, the audience, to let me know what you guys want to hear about so if you do have a good idea of what you'd like me to cover please send me an email to the history of australia podcast at gmail.com that one again it's a long one the history of australia podcast at gmail.com other than that leave us a rating if you liked what you heard and we'll see you next week okay that's the end of his first episode uh all right, that was very nice. Um, I'll have to match him. All right. Um, and look, I'll just continue to be a bit of a smart ass. Sorry, and sorry for the swearing occasionally, but he swears a little bit too. Did you notice that? We'll both do the same thing. Uh, we're both Aussies, so you know. And um, and and if you're listening and you're very uh, prudish, you can say, "Oh, you two." older western males are making me feel uncomfortable um, just thought look I don't want to block you I don't want to have to block you please mind your language um, and uh, because I don't want to feel uncomfortable <laughs> alright yeah. uh, there's an irreverence that goes with being Australian there's an irreverence go- with, that goes with being a lot of um, cultures you know uh, my favourite irreverent people are the Spartans I'm married to Spartans uh, uh, they're the greatest, you know. We call ourselves laconic sometimes, we Australians, but laconic comes from the Spartans, you know. They come from a region called Laconia, and they were the experts, the ancient Spartans, at being laconic. Um, and, you know, there's room for that. It's a bit of a, it's a, you know, it's a bit awkward when people like Chris, my friend here, and me, you know, are trying to be kind of cool and we drop a little goddamn, you know, or bloody, you know, but, oh, well, what can you do? Okay, um, so, um, well, uh, that's the end of the episode, um, I don't need any help from you, the audience, you know, Chris was saying he wants you to drop him an email and tell him what you want him to cover his audience, what he wants, what you want him to cover, because he's there providing a service to you, good on him, I think that's lovely, you, uh, you can, um, you cannot drop me an email, because I haven't got an email address to give you, and um, I, I tell you what, email Chris, you tell him what you want him to cover, and then I will steal his podcast, and make my podcast on the back of his, all right? So, that's my system. Um, I'm, I'm going the total amoral approach here. <laughs> All right then. Um, 
I don't even know if this is all a good idea, but I'm doing it anyway. Okay. Reflection time. Uh, my daughter, at the, you know, my middle daughter, you know, the second daughter, um, she did a funny reflection recently. Um, it was the end of term one. She's in year six, you know, and she was asked to reflect on how far she had come in her first term at school and she wrote, you know, at the end of term one, I am not as disorganised as I was even at the start of the year. Classic. I like that. Um, right. Um, reflection for me. Um, I think that I'm starting to like the sound of this Chris better than I'm starting to like the sound of me. Um, it's actually a, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's the best way to do a podcast, to put someone else's podcast on and then respond to it because it encourages me to be a little bit smart alecky. Uh, and, I, you know, that's not my style, but, um, oh, what the hell, you know, I've already started, so I'll keep going. Uh, he's only done three podcasts. He had grand ambitions, I can tell. But he's only done three podcasts. So I'm going to actually plough on. And let's call this not quite the real me. Because it's me um, doing something un that doesn't come naturally to me. I like talking off the top of my head, as you probably noticed in the first five episodes. And, you know, I've, it was on a whim that I decided to piggyback on the back of someone else's podcast, as I'm doing, but I'm yet to be able to make a judgment about that, whether it is a good idea or not. I'll probably listen to the lot afterwards and, you know, make a judgment and say, I'll give that five out of ten as a good idea. Um, it, it wasn't quite as free-flowing, you know, um, as if you hadn't done that at all. Charlie, is that my name in these podcasts? I use fake names all the time and I forget which fake name I'm using in each podcast. I've got other podcasts, you know. I think I'm Charlie in this one. I think I called myself Charlie. Um, um, anyway, um, so, you know, I might judge myself. I might give the, this little series of episodes five out of ten. But let's have the start of his next episode uh, episode number two Chris's episode number two and my goodness I hope Chris never hears this podcast and I hope he's not living in my street you know because he very much object to what I'm doing with his podcasts here I feel really guilty I'm feeling like a bad bad person uh, but I'm going to plow on because once you start something you keep going Alright, um, so um, let's see what he says at the start of his second episode. Um, and I think it's going to be about... There's a fascination in the field of anthropology about untouched cultures. You know, native people who have had little or no contact with a technologically advanced society. 
a squishy mattress and having a warm cup of coffee in the morning. So who are they to say what happy means? But who am I to dictate what the metric is for a happy or a quote-unquote better society? Just because European society developed in the way that it did does not mean that primitive native tribes have it wrong. Does it mean that they aren't as evolved or intelligent as the white man? And here's the big question, just how did they survive without air conditioning and Spotify? Alright, um, there's an engine running at the moment, I'm driving, but um, he's not, he's speaking along the same lines as I was there, isn't he really? You know, when I was kind of talking about um, agricultural-based societies versus hunter-gatherer societies, societies and which type of society is more forward, evolved, civilised even if you lo- if you want to corrupt the Greek meaning of the word civilised, hey? Um, now, Chris here is sort of saying the same thing and I, I find myself agreeing with him. Um, so, yeah, who is to say who is more happy? Uh, I would have to actually live for 10 years with an indigenous community back in the times, back in the days before uh, Europeans came to Australia to get any sort of idea about that. Um, who is more happy? Um, you know, my godson, as I mentioned, lived 10 years with indigenous communities the last 10 years. He would have a much better idea than me about who is happier. You know, I know in my life, I'm as happy as Larry, really, and I'm not joking. You know, all my life I've been happy. Um, so I know I'm pretty happy. Um, I've been listening to philosophy podcasts too, um, and I'm deep into Marxism at the moment. And uh, the more I listen to Marxism and neo Marxism, oh my goodness, they're. They're going out, you know, hammer and tongs and hammer and sickle, um, trying to convince me I'm not happy and I just think I'm happy. Uh, the Marxists are very, you know, do you know what? I'm finding the Marxists, I, I get where they're coming from, but I find them a bit cynical and um, um, a bit depressing for me. Um, they're saying that I'm trapped, and this all relates to indigenous culture, what I'm saying here, because it's, you know, um, this is a Marxist critique of a capitalist society and Australia, as modern Australia, um, is a capitalist society and that is kind of measured against the ancient indigenous ways. Alright, so the Marxists, in criticising a capitalist um, system, are kind of sort of um, saying... You know, that, that's actually a very handy perspective, isn't it? Um, to say that maybe the indigenous people are happier than we are because the Marxists are very eager to tell me, uh, you know, as far as I can understand Marxism, um, the Marxists are telling me that I'm unhappy, that I'm actually trapped, you know, and um, that I'm trapped in a cycle from birth where I'm told... You know, that I'm chained to the wheel, um, employment, that I'm oppressed into a lifetime of working, um, and also in 
consumerism, you know. So I'm trapped in this cycle where I've got to work more to buy more stuff, and I've got to buy more, and I'm, I'm, marketing tells me I need to buy more stuff, so I need to keep working, and I'm a slave and I don't know it, you know. I'm just like the feudal peasants, um, and, um, you know, class, I'm, I'm of that class, you know. It's a class warfare I'm involved in. I don't even know it. Now, all I can say is from personal experience, I love my life. I have a ball, you know. Every day I wake up and I'm happy. That's all I know. Now, obviously, that's a, a statistical sample of one person on the planet. Uh, but I'm, I really love my life. I go to the football on Saturday for home games and watch Essendon. I wake up and I'm comfortable every morning. I sleep really comfortably. And, you know, I have a happy little nuclear family. The, the neo-Marxists say I live in a little box and I'm not part of my community. Um, to a certain extent, that's true. I've got a little box. I'm driving in a little box at the moment. I'm always in boxes, you know. I'm in a box called a car, a box with wheels on it. And I'm isolated from the world just talking into a little box called a telephone, a mobile phone. And when I get out of my little box that is my car, you know, I used to be on a horse, you know, in the old days. And I was saying, oh, hello there. How are you? You know, communing with all the people and communing with nature. Hello, little... You know, hello lamppost, hello street, you know, um, hello, hello apple tree, I think I might pick an apple, you know, and eat it, that would be lovely, you know, and, but now I'm in a little box, and I'm isolated, I'm detached, I'm, I'm alienated from nature, and when I get home, I'll hop out of this box and into another box called a house, and I'll live in that house, um, uh, but, you know, I love it. And sometimes, you know, and I love my little boxes. I really enjoy them. Is it because I'm conditioned? Look, it's getting a bit confusing for me, all of this. But it's a really important discussion. The Marxists and the neo-Marxists are, can, uh, yeah, as far as I can tell, very much criticising this boxy idea of living. And maybe I'd be happier if I was living in an open society, tribal, hunter-gatherer type of, you know, indigenous kind of... Um, society where we're all communing all the time but then again you know what if I hate everybody in my tribe you know what if I just want to be alone you know um, maybe I don't want to go to a corroboree tonight you know it's a little bit like going to mass I don't want to go to mass you know this Sunday um, I, I, I want to stay home I don't want to go to mass you know I don't want to go to the corroboree um, now I'm not trying to push it if you're a Marxist go with the box idea and capitalist society is a terrible one and you've got an alternative, a socialist idea, you know, or a communist idea even. But you might be an indigenous person saying, yes, the Marxists have got it right on the problem, the boxes, you know, capitalist society locked in a cycle of consumerism and, you know, um, working to buy things, um, you know, trapped in that cycle. Um, buying into the lie that you need lots of stuff so you need to keep working desperately so that you can own land and all that sort of stuff you know so you know the indigenous people might say the marxists have properly criticized capitalism but their solution is rubbish too you should all go back to a hunter-gatherer idea hunter-gatherer idea be like indigenous people because we are truly happy okay so there you go number of systems there there are other systems too you know, not just socialism, capitalism, and 
you know, indigenous, uh, traditional indigenous sort of living. Um, there are systems that probably haven't been invented yet. I'd like to find out about those one day before I die. Okay. But this is all really important stuff, you know. And whatever you think's right, so do I. You know? I'm not sitting on a fence. I'm saying there's some pluses to be said for all those systems. Um, I quite like my cap. I'm not going to give up my capitalism, you know, my capitalist ways. Only because I like it. I like my car. And I love my phone. Um, there's a lot of things I like. I like being able to put on any classical music in all of history and go to sleep listening to classical music. That suits me. Um, I really like that, you know. I find I, I feel lucky being able to do that. Um, and there's a lot of other things too. I like Western medicine. I might like traditional medicines too, but I love medicine, you know. Medicine has saved the bacon of people in my family more than once, you know. Um, a Western medicine. Um, you know, Western poisonous living might have, toxicity might have caused a lot of the problems with my family. But, you know, I've, I've got a f- pretty pretty solid expectation of living to 100 quite comfortably at this. I'm 56 now. I reckon I can go the extra 44 and, you know, crack the ton, as we Aussies call it, back in the days when you were allowed to speed and the cops would say, oh, yeah, you're all right, don't worry about it. You know, crack the ton was 100 mile an hour. 100 miles an hour. Okay, uh, my dad did that with us once. You know, we, we had MGAs. My dad loved MGAs. And he got my brother and I, we sat in the front seat and we were kids. And dad took us down a freeway. Freeways were pretty new then. Um, and he said, All right, boys, it was raining, you know. And we had the plastic, you know, we had the soft top. Um, you know, this is, these are all, pro, you know, this is all living in Western society. This is all, you know, the fun you can have living in Western society. And my dad was very irresponsible, but he wasn't irresponsible for his times because the notion of ir- irresponsibility changes over time. Um, back then you could drink drive and, you know, the policeman would, you know, if you were, if you were nice uh, about it and you were culturally similar to him, as um, long as you weren't indigenous um, the cop might say look look go home to your wife drive carefully will you just keep it under you know drive carefully will you drunk as a skunk honestly just drive carefully you know that's the way it used to be when I was young uh, but not anymore uh, values change you know but you know my dad put us two boys you know um, there was no seat belts as far as I recall uh, and or if there was he put it across both of us. Um, we did have cars back in those days with no seat belts. I remember that. We had a Wolseley, um, had no seat belts. And you know, sometimes we had 10 kids in the car because I had four cousins and six of us siblings, brothers and sisters. And, you know, we had the 10 of us in a Wolseley and my mother and godmother in the front, you know. So that's the way it was. The fun you can have in a Western society. And anyway, my dad got us up to the ton, which might not sound very fast for some of you rev heads, but at the time, you know, it was raining and, and I remember it was so exciting, so irresponsible, you know. Um, two young boys, you know, flying along a freeway and we're staring, you know, a really good bonding moment with our dad, you know, staring at the Speedo and, you know, 90, 95, 96, trying to get to the ton. He said, keep your eye on it, boys, keep your eye on it. Here we go, ton, ton, ton. 
you know, that's my memory of it. My memory might be fuzzy because I was only about five or six, I think. But I, I kind of remember that as a nice memory. Maybe I enhanced the memory. I'm always very suspicious of my memory. Um, but, you know, I do seem to remember that as a moment when Dad was trying to get us up to 100. Um, you know. And in a, in a car where you could really feel the driving, that's what it was like. And then one, one wonders why my brothers and I all, you know, kind of had a little bit of trouble speeding when we got our licences. But you're a product of your social construction, aren't you? It was a value that was instilled in us that this was great. All right. Okay, but I'm just telling you this is what life is like as a Westerner. And it's not so very like the Marxist construction of it, you know, because my dad was, oh, he was having fun in his life, I think. You know, he flew aeroplanes, that was his job. And, um, and you know, and I learned to fly too. And, uh, um, and, um, and all this sort of thing. This is Western culture, you know. It's a terrible, terrible thing. We're all trapped in a cycle of consumerism and having to earn money to fund that consumerism. It's a terrible lifestyle. And we all, we're all slaves and we don't know it. But you know, the funny thing is I don't feel like one of those slaves of the ancient Spartans. I feel a little bit happier than that. But getting back to the indigenous peoples, um, like my friend Chris here says, Maybe they were happier than us. Maybe they, there were people there that were happier than me. Maybe I don't know what I'm missing. Um, you know, but then again, maybe they back then didn't know what they were missing either. There are other delights um, that I have as a Westerner in modern Australian society that I really love, you know. I really enjoy. Um, you know, I, I, um, I won't even go into it. You can guess all the rest of the things I enjoy. I, I basically have a nice day every day really I'm very privileged you know um, do you know a lot of Westerners really arc up when you talk about their privilege you know um, but me I know about it my I've studied a lot of history I you know I uh, act all self-deprecating sometimes but I have studied a lot of history um, not so much indigenous history but a lot of other histories Rome and Greece especially and all that and a lot on Ethiopia recently and other places too and my goodness I'm privileged I'm one of the you know I would be and I'm not trying to show off I'm just reporting I'm 100% reporting here um, but what a life you know it's just great it could go bad in five minutes flat you know I could actually pull over I could I could actually take off I'm I've just come to Sunbury in Victoria to pick up my daughter. Um, I could pull out of here and get hit by a truck. Um, I kind of prefer to get hit by a truck before I pick up my daughter. You know, but it can happen. You know, Oh, there's superstitious people listening probably. Um, oh, am I test tempting fate? Well, actually, no, I'm not. Um, because I'm not superstitious, you know. You know, I, I'll say right now, you know... Um, I'm quite happy to say that high devil up there, or down there, wherever you are, the devil, and high God as well, um, do your worst. I challenge the gods, you know, uh, because I, I refuse to be a mouse in the face of the gods. Not, I don't want to be superstitious, you know, and I, I object to, oh, here we go.
sorry, I got interrupted. That was God. And he said, watch yourself. Um, uh, hey, indigenous people, can I quickly jump into your, uh, before I get in trouble, can I um, subscribe to your belief system very quickly? I've got to get out of mine because I'm in a bit of trouble. You know, I challenge the gods and it's bad to challenge the gods. I've read all the Greek myths to my son um, and I know what happens to you if you challenge the gods. You know, I might get turned into a spider, you know. Um, all right, so you know what I'm saying. All right, so... Um, uh, the, yeah, or I just happened to be listening listening lately about Marxism and and Marxism would offer a critique that would suggest that um, the capitalist way of life is an unhappy one. Um, indigenous people might sort of suggest that so is this so are all Western ideologies, you know. Um, but then um, uh, Indigenous people. Well, Captain Cook, who, you know, I know a bit about Captain Cook. Jump in, jump in. Um, just be quiet, I'm still talking. Believe it or not, just li- What? <laughs> Sorry? You still recording? Yeah, I'm recording. Yeah, but shh. No, I don't want to cut this part. Really? Yeah. Just hop in and listen to your iPad okay. for a minute. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm enjoying myself. I'm in the middle of something and the battery's about to run flat. I don't want your I don't want your voice on my podcast. Hello. No, shush. <laughs> sit in the back and sit down. Can you teach me how to do this? No, hey? Stop it. Can you teach me how to do this? Yeah, I can. Alright, say something. Hey, I'll ask you a question and you can speak on it, alright? Okay. okay. Alright, jump in the front. Come on. No, no, for fun. Come on, this will be fun. Hey? One question. Alright. No, seriously. You wanna have some fun? Fine. Okay. This is Harley. My daughter, Harley. You know what I'm doing there, don't you? Because I don't use... Yeah, you're using a fake name. Yeah, I always do, as you know, because I don't like to use real names. Mm-hmm. All right. My daughter has just jumped in the car, and she wants to join us on this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know who she is, and you don't know who I am, so we're just going to have some fun. All right. You're actually this is, a dog. <laughs> this is suddenly... All right. And, um, all right, let's go. Oh, Uh-oh. hang on. That's your door. No, it's not. The back door. All right. Now, this podcast, Harley, is about Indigenous Australia. Do you know what that is? Yeah. What? Now, don't be a smart aleck. Come on. It's Indigenous Australia. Correct. Well done. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you remember those Bora rings I took you up to with Cassie? (laughs) Oh, sorry. We've got to give everyone a false name. Um, with Catherine. Catherine, that'll do. You know Catherine when we went with her kids up to those Bora rings in no. Sunbury? Come on. <laughs> you know, the indigenous, the Aboriginal. Wait, do they have water in them? No, they had no water in them. It... Oh, no, is that the thing where we had to like climb the fence? And then yeah, we climbed the cut. fence. Yeah, yeah. 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 What did you think of those Bora rings? I didn't see any rings. There but... was a ring there, you had to look closely, it was very worn. We were busy jumping over a bush and climbing. Okay. Trees. Oh, I've got a different other question. Another question. <coughs> All right. I have a cold. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that you would prefer to live these days with our lifestyle, or in um, indigenous communities before 
Europeans came to Australia. You Nowadays. Know, why? Internet. Hey? Internet. The internet. Okay. No, but if, if, there were, if I didn't really, if I was one of those people who didn't really like internet. Yes. Then I probably would go back to the Aboriginal because there's no homework. But. Oh, that's a fair point. Fair or point. is there? Maybe they've got their own little civilization of homework and then they kill you if you don't do it. Uh, yeah, maybe. 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 But just remember that I'll kill you if you don't do your homework as well. No, you won't. I might. I'll kill you. <laughs> Alright, next question. Next question. <laughs> yep. <laughs> three, oh, give me the first three words that come to your mind when I say, oh, I'll give you one. Three words that come to your mind when I say Aboriginal culture. Now, I'll, I'll say the first one. Rainbow snake. Now you've got to say three other words. Red bird, blue bird, green bird. No, no, no. They are all from what? the rainbow snake story. Oh, what? They're from the rainbow snake story. Okay, tell me about the rainbow snake story because you might know more the about it. The rainbow snake story is about um, a rainbow snake that formed all colour. Oh, go slowly and speak loud because I actually don't <laughs> know this story. You, you learn things at school that even I don't know about. Well, I'm absolutely I don't really serious. remember it at all. In, when I, I went I to school, they didn't teach us about this. I don't remember much. No, I can't. But I do remember that uh, there, was a rem there was a snake, and it's called the rainbow snake because that's where Aborigine Aborigines used to think that this rainbow snake created colour. They, oh. they used to have their own little religion, sort of, and it was based around this snake. All right. There was also other reptiles in there in their religions. One was like a black lizard, right. I believe, but I'm not sure. It doesn't and that matter. was the one of fire. Um, but anyway, the rainbow snake is what gave the birds their colour, I believe. Right. And I'm not sure why, but I remember that. But I don't really remember anything else. I do remember that the rainbow snake is what gave the earth colour in there, in what they like to um, imagine. They And they made a book about it because it's been passed down from generations about this rainbow snake and some aborigines even in the modern day world still believe it today even though they know that they have scientific proof that that's not how it happened they still like to believe that because that's what they believe in as aboriginals and they want to stick with their culture fair enough and um and possibly you think that we do the same thing with christianity no, no, not really. What's the story with Christianity? Is that well, there's oh. two sides to it. One being, like the Rainbow Snake story, we want to keep the religion alive. Yes. And two being that people do generally just enjoy having something to believe in. Like, they don't want to think about all the scientific facts and realise that the world is just a boring place that just happened. They want to think that there's something bigger and a deeper meaning behind the earth. And it's sort of like a message. And other people just generally do believe that God did create the Earth and the Big Bang Theory isn't actually possible. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, what do you think? I, I've never asked you this question. What do you think? Earth created in seven days? Is there a God up there? Uh, and then, yeah, this is I don't just... really like answering it, but I do believe that God yeah. moved two planets and collide and collided them to create the Big Bang, the Big Bang Theory, um, and and that's and he did that to create the Earth because it doesn't make sense that he would just create everything um, one by one like that. He he moved those two stars together. I don't seven hours, not seven days. 
Oh, so you think, oh, seven hours instead of seven yeah, days. because he, he can move them very fast and speed of light. And he moved both stars together, created the big, the big Bang, and that's why we have Earth today. Oh, so, so two huge stars, let's say, yeah. collided yeah. and created the Big Bang. Do you know what? That's just as good an explanation as any other to tell the but truth. I want to bring God into it because I am. Yeah, why do you want to bring God into it? Because I like God. Alright, okay. <laughs> I mean, you grow up thinking that this actually happened when you don't know about the Big Bang Theory. So you grow up thinking it was God, so why would you want to stop that? Fair enough. And is that the same way? And I'm, you know, um, that's fine by me. And the indigenous people might do the same thing with the rainbow serpent, uh, snake. Yeah, I think so. I'm not trying to lead, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth and no, tell you what to believe. No, they probably wouldn't do that. Back then, like back then, they didn't. They only had very, um, they only had very simple knowledge of how the Earth was created. So they might have thought that that was true back then. But modern, modern days, Aboriginals probably think that, um, they think that the Big Bang Theory is true. But they do still want to believe in their culture that they've had for generations before the Europeans arrived. So yeah, I, yeah. you know what? I get all that, and. Um, I'm not going to moralise and all that sort of thing because that's not my style. But I get all that. Um, to a certain extent, that's like holding two truths in your head at once. One truth that seems to be true scientifically and another truth that is more traditional. How does that sound? Uh, I think of it more as one truth and a lie. A but truth and a lie, all right. Yeah, but that's because um, it is a lie and people do know that it's fake. But... Then again, they do want to be able to think that there's actually something out there that's bigger than them, that's better than them, that cares about them. So they want to believe that there's actually some spirit watching over them um, that created Earth. They don't want to think, oh, it was just two stars, it doesn't really matter. Well, we're all going to die anyway, because that's what an angsty teen thinks. Do you know what? I actually kind of agree. Okay? Without going into it. Um, I agree. And um, also, people do believe in Christianity because they also don't like the thought that there'll be nothing after death. Because everybody knows that they're going to die, but they what, they like to picture that they're going to go somewhere else after death, not just complete, just not completely be gone forever. Just they disappear. Wanna, yeah. yeah, they want actually an afterlife, and they want to believe that there's something better out there. All right. Yeah, it's it's just it's sort of all just a mindset, really. A mindset. Yep. Yeah. It's sort of that thought that, oh, I know this is true, but I'd rather believe this, so I'm going to make myself believe this, even though I know it's Do you know what? I think that's what makes us sophisticated, that we can, as humans, you know, um, see what the science is saying, but we were also born with imaginations and emotions and all that sort of thing, and we can be bigger than just the plain facts of the world. Is that what you're saying? Or you don't like yeah. me putting words into your mouth? No, no, but that's, that's roughly thing. it. Because scientists, it's their job to um, discover the, the bigger reasons of the universe. And once they've found this Big Bang Theory, at first it's like, oh my gosh, this is how it happened, it all makes sense now. But then after that, you kind of are left with a bit of an empty feeling that 
now that they have an explanation for it, it sort of defeats the purpose of everything you knew before that. Like, I think that people preferred not being able to know how it actually happened. I think they preferred just to keep it in their own minds and believe in what they believe in without scientific facts behind them. Now, let me think about this, because I think you're absolutely onto something there. And I think some of the greatest philosophers, you don't even know them perhaps, have, I think you're echoing what some of the great philosophers have said. Now, I think it was, um, yeah, I think it was, who was it? Um, Kant? Emmanuel Kant? Um, uh, one of them said... Who, who said God is dead? There was um, a famous philosopher that declared God is dead. Um, I should know who it is. And he was saying something like that. Now, he wasn't saying that he was glad that God was dead, but he was saying when science came along... That's what I was just thinking when you said that, that when science came along it defeated God, meaning yeah. that God, God was dead. It wasn't really the fact that God was literally dead. It was the fact that the idea of God was fading away because people was um, are more willing to believe in the scientific truth than yeah. than, any, than anything else that they're just told. Yeah. Well, this um, philosopher um, was saying, you know, he made the comment, "God is dead," but he wasn't saying it in a way that he was happy about that. You know, he was saying, "Oh, he wasn't saying, aha, God is dead. We finally killed him." He wasn't saying that. He was almost regretful. He was saying, now that we know all this science, um, that's kind of sad in a way. He was saying, I'm just checking, it's still recording. He was saying, that's sad in a way um, because now that we have this knowledge, um, no rational person can have that beautiful, pure faith in their culture anymore because it's been polluted by these ideas of science which is smashing. Yeah, there's something I always think about too. Yeah. If, if what makes Jesus so great is the fact that people back then had no idea how the earth created and they just thought that what Jesus was telling them was the truth and nothing but the truth. They praised him, they worshipped him because they thought that generally what he was saying was the truth and all the miracles that he, um, he did were all just generally the truth and how the earth was created but if this was modern day Jesus and Jesus came down and tried to tell us these things then people would be that because we have all this knowledge people would no longer want to listen to Jesus they might think he was crazy they, didn't, they wouldn't understand it anymore because we know that it's not true so they, yeah. they probably they wouldn't be able to connect to Jesus they wouldn't you wouldn't even notice Jesus if he was in the real world he would just be seen as the, a crazy man talking about magic because yeah water into wine yeah G jesus jesus back then was uh um he was he was almost like this he was he was the savior but he was also almost like uh something something just generally to believe in and yeah. ever everybody enjoyed that everybody was thinking oh well this this man has come and he's talking to us so it must be true it must be true because he's telling us this but if somebody and there's no scientific evidence against it yeah but if if he said that today and everybody has all this knowledge then he would be telling us what we need to believe in and most people just wouldn't be listening they just walk along mm. and hey it wasn't yeah. Immanuel Kant I remember who it was it was Friedrich Nietzsche Nietzsche 
Nietzsche, Nietzsche, um, German, um, Nietzsche said, God is dead. And he was saying it in an almost regretful way, you know? And he was saying, God is dead now because I have been robbed of my ability to believe in God and Jesus and all that sort of stuff in any pure way. Because people can say that they believe in God and Jesus, but they, they know somewhere deep down that they don't. Because I know. They, they sort of can't. Now, to a certain extent, are indigenous people in the same boat then? They used to, in a very pure way, believe in the rainbow snake and the, the three-coloured birds and all that sort of stuff. And it was actually beautiful in a way. And then Westerners came to Australia and brought all their science along. And even though Indigenous people are still holding on to their culture, it's been damaged a bit, hasn't it? Because they're sort of thinking, yes, but we know all the science now and that we know some of the things that we were believing in are just silly on a scientific level at least, you know what I mean? And that kind of, and is that kind of saying like Nietzsche said, um, indigenous beliefs are dead in the same way that God is dead. Is that a bit like the same sort of thing? Yeah, it is. But um, indigenous beliefs, well, I think that when the Aborigines, they were, when um, the Europeans came to the Aborigines, I think that the Aborigines were a little more defensive about that and so they they tried very hard to hold on to it they yeah. were they were very um they, they were they were more like you are not going to tell us this this is what we believe in and we are going to stick with it yeah whereas today's world the minute a scientist pulls out this oh big bang everybody's straight on the side and suddenly everybody realizes that whereas back then the aborigines probably would have been like nope we shouldn't believe you what makes us want to believe you because they didn't have the evidence yes. that it was that it happened, but now yeah. they do. Everybody's on their side. All right. If the scientists didn't have the evidence and they just told us that this Big Bang theory was true, nobody would believe it. Yeah. Now that's really interesting. I love the way you're talking. Now Frederick Nietzsche, what he said is one of the things he said when God is dead. Um, you know, an indigenous culture is dead. You know, by extension, was what is. What will be the outcome of that if you strip all if you strip all that off people, and you just go with science? What might happen? And do you know he kind of predicted what happened? The World War One and World War Two. You know about World War One and World War Two. World War Two especially was between two very godless kinds of people called the communists were involved and the Nazis. You know you've heard about the Nazis. And um, yeah, some very bad things happened when God was killed off as a pure faith thing. Um, look, I'll stop the podcast there because you're probably tired. Well, I think. Is just there one any last thing, thing you want to say? Uh, I think that even what you're saying about like all the wars and stuff, I'm starting to think that humans are going to be their own worst enemies. All right. Because they they're very civilized and and um, and they, and we know how to act. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And yet we still find a way to be harmful to each other, um, as well as the fact that we did have these beliefs at the beliefs at the start, and then we came up with scientific evidence that proved them wrong. And I think at some point people are going to start trying to find evidence to why religion's right and, ev- and get everybody on that side, and then they're going to come back with other scientific evidence mm. prove that wrong. So they're going to try and prove their own theories wrong because they're never going to want to stop growing in what they believe in. So they're going to be like, 
okay, we know this, but, but maybe it's this, 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 and then they'll keep going on forever. So, yeah, I'm going to go watch BGT. <laughs> What's BGT? Britain's Got Talent. Britain's Got Talent. All right, enjoy watching Britain's Got Talent. Um, thank you, Harley, for your contribution. You are the first person who I've interviewed in my entire life. How many people are watching, by the way? Nobody. Okay. This sits me fine. <laughs>I enjoyed that, um, uh, having a chat with my daughter. I didn't expect her to be doing that, but I might do that again. And you know, in some ways, I enjoyed that more than I might enjoy sitting on in on a lecture by a professor on Indigenous Australia. I might have even learned more from a 12-year-old who um, then I might have learned from a professor. But especially if I had fallen asleep in the lecture. You know, very hard to learn when you're falling asleep. Right, um, and, and this is what I'm getting at with these podcasts. You know, if it is the case that I got more out of listening to a 12-year-old than I might get out of an episode created by my uh, podcasting friend Chris, um, who has done a lot of research on Indigenous Australia, if I got more out of uh, my, uh, listening to my daughter, then who am I, you know, who can, um, who can light up my brain better on these matters? You know, I might vote for the 12-year-old girl. And by extension, uh, if you have a choice between a professor, uh, a podcast by a professor, I know of that podcast, um, and a podcast from me, it's not automatically true that you might get more out of the guy that knows more. It's not all about who knows more, you know. Sometimes you can learn more, and I've said this in podcasts before, um, by just listening to someone else just chatting and not necessarily knowing much and then that you know uh, triggering your own curiosity for you and you know reinforcing or whatever your own thoughts and you know getting your own brain lighting up you know that can happen um, so you know there somewhere there lies the validity of a podcast like this perhaps you know but just before I did bring my daughter on, accidentally, or before she forced herself into my podcast, excuse me again, <coughs> I was, I almost mentioned Captain Cook again, because I tend to bring Captain Cook in, because, you know, know a few things about him, and he has a famous uh, journal entry, he made a famous journal entry, he made a journal entry that became famous. Um, in which he wrote, uh, after observing the indigenous peoples, that they would appear to be very, you know, happier than we British. He said it in a few more words than that. Uh, um, but that's what he was saying, you know. Um, and 
he was just putting it up there as his little reflection, um, his little philosophy for the day, that day in between, you know, measuring, um, you know, coastal inlets and all the things he really was into. Um, but you know, he just said that, and people have made a lot of that and, and enjoyed that comment a lot. Uh, and, you know, and and they've said he's an enlightened man for his time. He was an enlightened man for his time. Excuse the uh, parrots. Um, oh, squawking parrots. Uh, that's what this podcast is about. I'm walking under some squawking parrots here. Uh, yeah. Oh, they're corellas, are they? Hang on. Uh, sorry, I can't even see them there a bit of a way off, but they're loud, so you can hear them. Um, they're all in a tree somewhere. Right, now, uh, so, um, Captain Cook, an enlightened man for his time. Uh, but they splash paint on his statues, you know. Um, every time people are, you know, activists, uh, uh, wanting the right things, um, they go and find a, ca- a statue of Captain Cook and splash paint on Captain Cook, you know. Uh, and for reasons that I've gone over many times in these podcasts, maybe a statue of Captain Cook is not the most appropriate statue uh, to splash paint on. I mean, the idea to come to Australia uh, was was had long after he was dead. He never knew we came to Australia. Uh, uh, or he never knew the British came to Australia. Uh, but then again, you know, the activists might be saying, listen, it's not about Captain Cook. We're not splashing paint on Captain Cook per se, you know. Um, we're, we're splashing paint on the fact that the British came here at all, on the system, you know. He was part of a system, we're splashing paint on that system, you know, the British system. Uh, they did the wrong thing, you know. But, you know, perhaps those activists um, had, you know, if they were back in those times, would they have... A pl- you know, they would have loved Captain Cook back in that time with their exact same brain matter. And, um, you know, they, you know, because they're a product of their own times now and they're a product of you know, enlightenment thinking, uh, the sorts of thinking that Captain Cook himself had, you know. So they've got Captain Cook to thank and a lot of people like Captain Cook to thank because they were the stepping stones uh, to on the path which those activists now have walked without knowing they've walked on them, you know, because they're a product of all the philosophy over the times. You know, the British, for example, and, you know, there might be nuance to this. So, you know, for example, invented the idea, as far as I can tell, of uh, the English invented the idea of the abolishment of slavery, you know, did they? You know, question that if you like. You know, I might be being too simplistic there, but as far as I can tell, the the English invented the idea of abolishing slavery. You know, and it came out of their own Enlightenment thinking. The English are not known for being enlightened thinkers. You know, the Continentals were more enlightened, and even the Scottish were more enlightened. You know, know, they had more enlightened thinking, but the British had their bit. They had their own English Enlightenment of sorts and Wilberforce and all those sorts of guys, you know, they came up with this idea that um, slavery should be abolished, you know, and, you know, because the, the idea of equality was taking root in their minds. Um, and it came out of enlightenment, you know, Western enlightenment thinking. 
you know. And it wasn't a case, and I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, it wasn't a case of, for example, African-American slaves, um, you know, when they heard the English come up with this idea of the abolishment of slavery, saying, aha, we were waiting for you to, you know, we've been patiently waiting for you to come up with that. We've known that all the time, you know. Well, no, I doubt it, although I could be wrong. I think Africans in general were all for slavery, including this, you know, they did, they did not question slavery as a good idea. They just thought it was just the way of life, you know. They just thought it was the most natural thing on earth. All, you know, what we call civilizations thought that, as far as I can tell, um, because remember that hierarchy um, type idea that comes out of agricultural societies, you know, specialization of labor and all that sort of thing, you know. Slavery seems to have grown out of that and all through history, both slave masters and slaves seem to have largely thought that slavery was um, the most natural thing in the world and slaves haven't been activists all through history for the abolishment of slavery. They've been activists for, we don't want to be slaves anymore, we want to be the slave masters and we want you to be the slaves. You know, it's a very different thing to the abolishment of slavery, you know what I mean? Very different thing. And, you know, maybe the English can... um, get a little bit of um you know recognition for you know the light bulb going off along with all the enlightenment thinkers um for slavery you know that was a stepping stone the idea of slavery just don't have it you know absolutely revolutionary you know idea um yeah and then uh and then that spreads to america and all that sort of stuff and the light bulb then starts going off in everybody's heads all around the world and um, slowly all the countries one by one you know uh, finishing off with a few in um, northeast Africa and um, a few um, Middle Eastern countries who were the last to give in you know who kept their slaves for the longest held out for the longest said no we want to keep our slaves you know um, you know, no, Ethiopia, for example, who, which I've studied, you know, they held on to the idea of slavery for as long as they possibly could, and then um, until the, basically the UN, you know, the, the fledgling UN kind of forced them not to do that anymore, and um, and then uh, the only one, other one I remember is Oman, which lasted all the way what till 1970, <laughs> which is not that long ago, and kept their slaves, you know, till then, and you know, arguably, look. Could end up back in Marxism here, and we've still got slavery, huh? All right, um, to this day, you know, and the West is enslaving, you know, the sweatshops of Bangladesh and all that sort of stuff. All right, let's keep going. Um, it's a huge topic, but the point is, the idea was had, as far as I can tell, by the English, and it was a good idea. And Captain Cook, you know, he had some enlightened ways, although he was very tough. Um, very bad man because he's so tough. But then again, you try being a sea captain. If you're not tough, you're all dead. You know, so there's, um, you, you've got to have nuance, you know, have to have nuance. And the modern progressive, you know, sometimes looks back and sort of says, you know, the, all these people are bad. And you say, yeah, but the, the most enlightened ones, you know, um, you, you know, you're not better. You know, you as the average progressive um, are perhaps not better people, um, than the very enlightened, you know, the, the ones who were pushing enlightenment forward the, the most back then, 
perhaps you're not as saintly as those even though you're better people by your standards now and this is roughly what Chris my friend was coming going on who's to judge and um, you know and back you know because um, you're you they actually made you you know so you're criticizing the people who made you that can happen you know so a lot of Western progressives for example heavily criticize people um, who weren't as who when you look back at them weren't as enlightened as they are now and but you sort of say to themselves no actually they were you know they were at the cutting edge of thinking pushing us all forward and you should thank them you shouldn't criticize them you should thank them because they made you you know that sort of thing and who are you making or are you just going along with the flow and just parroting the the current thinking you know and maybe you're not maybe you are pushing things forward whoever you are listening to this but you know um, I'll pick up on my friend's word it's a complicated metric you know, Chris Burke, that other podcaster I'm leveraging off, uses that word, metric. You know, it's a complicated metric. All right. Um, yeah, but, you know, just calm the old ego down might be a good idea, you know. Um, and I hope my ego is calmed down too. Um, all right, well, that can do for this podcast. Now, I enjoyed my daughter's uh, little speech so much that I'm going to... Uh, copy it into the next episode as a standalone episode because her speech is now you know because I talk so much and I'm happy about that I talk so much that you know if you have a little moment like that in a podcast like this it's buried deep you know no one will ever find it you know Um, I talk so much that most of what I say is never going to be heard by anyone you know like if even if I wanted to find something I said you know two weeks ago and I say to someone, oh, you know, I was, I was chatting about that the other day. And they say, oh, show me the podcast. Where is it? And I say, I've got no idea. No idea. You know, I couldn't find it. If you, you know, if you've got four hours for me even to just find it, you know. So all my words here are totally lost as I'm speaking them. Um, you know, that can be very Buddhist, you know. Um, you, you say things and then they... they get swept away with the wind you know I was studying Ethiopia so I ended up studying the Ark of the Covenant and you know uh, the movie uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark because the Ark of the Covenant the Ethiopians say they've got it in Ethiopia um, uh, but the Ark of the Covenant no sorry the the Raiders of the Lost Ark that movie um, um, it, it was about the Ark of the Covenant as well you know and in that the Americans end up claiming that this precious, you know, this precious thing full of power is filed somewhere in a hangar, a storage hangar somewhere in America with billions of bits and pieces of crap um, and it's just filed away but it's filed away amongst so much other stuff that you'll never find it anyway um, and you know that's like anything good that I might say in these podcasts are so buried in a warehouse that is my endless talking that you'll never find it anyway you know so all right um end of this podcast and let's see what chris burke has to say to get us 
rattling on about something else. Good on him. All right, where's the stop button? Um, Chris Burke, you know, when I said I agreed with him before, I, I you know, and that was much, you know, an hour ago maybe, um, when I said I agreed with him, you know, I just meant in general. Um, he doesn't express himself the way I express myself. You know, we use different grammar. We, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Uh, but you take that for granted, you know. You know that I express things differently than he does. Because if I didn't, I'd be mimicking him like a parrot, wouldn't I? But I'm saying things in a slightly different way to the way he says them, you know. All right, end of podcast.